Hello, and welcome to Detour. I'm Jorge Just. We're standing at the center of Fisherman's Wharf. Millions of people come here each year, but they rarely see the side of the wharf I'm about to show you. And they never get to meet the people who gave the place its name. For the next hour, you and I will walk through the Fisherman's Fisherman's Wharf. You should be standing on the corner of Jefferson and Taylor, underneath a 32-foot Fisherman's Wharf sign that's shaped like a ship's wheel. That sign's been here since 1966, which means it's practically a baby on this side of the wharf. You're probably staring up at the sign with the parking lot behind you. That's perfect. I'm going to guide you through a secret passageway that will take us to the docks. It's a bit hidden, so let me show you where we're going. Look across the street to the crab stands. See the burgundy awning at the corner? Guardinas? Next door, you've got the crab station, Sabella and La Torres, Nick's Lighthouse, and then the turquoise-colored awning for Aliotos. Then look up. The next sign is for Fisherman's Grotto number nine. I want you to meet me between the light blue awning of Aliotos and the dark blue awning of Fisherman's Grotto. Let's walk over now. Cross the street and take a right. As you walk past these crab stands, you'll notice they're hawking Dungeness crab. That's sort of the wharf's thing. San Francisco fishermen have been taking Dungeness since 1848, and it's San Francisco's biggest fishery by far, with millions of pounds of crab caught every year. And now that visitors expect crab when they come to the wharf, they even fly fresh crab in during the off-season. Okay, start looking to your left. Once you're standing between Fisherman's Grotto Number 9 and Aliotos, look for two glass doors that say Passageway to the Boats. They're next to a blue sign that says public access to the bay. When you find those doors, go on through. The crab stand guys won't care if you need to squeeze past them. Lean up against the railing when you get to the other side. For this part of the detour, I'm going to introduce you to someone who knows this spot a little better. He's been pulling crabs from the bottom of the ocean since 1970. He's a commercial fisherman named Mike Mitchell, but everyone calls him Candy. Welcome to the lagoon. My name is Mike, but people call me Candy. Actually, my first nickname was Zip, like my dad. But when I got down here, there was an older Italian fisherman called Zip. So that was that. Eventually, someone started calling me Candy. Not because I like candy, which I do, but because I was a good guy. Sweetest candy, they said, and it stuck. I've been coming here almost every day for 40 years. So you're in my backyard right now. See the boats to your left? If I'm not out fishing, my boats are four slip from the front. She's called the Linda Noel, after my ex-wife. I've had that same space since 1980. For 100 years, this lagoon's been the center of San Francisco's fishing industry. The original guys down here were Italians. They came during the gold rush and fished in these little sailboats called Felucas. There was also some Chinese fishermen who caught bay shrimp from traditional Chinese junks. Later on, the Vietnamese came in. The wharf gets all types. When I first came down here, I had no idea what I was doing. I think I made $500 my first couple years. I got lucky, though. Some old Italian guys took me under their wing. They were called the Yukon Gang. They've been fishing together all their lives. There were seven of us. Chicken Trolley, who was the president, and his brother, Chef. And then there was the governor. 
He was a cook, and Duke Cavello, he's the one that named me Candy, and Paps and Vaughn. I never would have made it without those guys. They showed me how to fish and saved my life at least once. Well, back then, every slip was taken, and every boat was a working boat. But a lot of the old guys have died. There's probably only 20 or 30 boats working here these days. The rest of them are just for show or charter boats. When it's in, the Argo is just in fun here. It's one of those charter boats. People pay to go out on them and catch fish and drink beer. You can tell these boats, they don't have any gear whatsoever, except pole holders that are there so you don't have to hold the rod. Next is the Sharon Marie. It's a Monterey. Pretty close to the boat I had when I first started fishing. This one was probably built in the late 20s or 30s. It's been down here ever since. If you look at the fuel logs 50 years ago, this little gal was the most active boat in Fisherman's Wharf. It was owned by a guy named Joe Bowes Jury. People thought his crew member was a mute. They called him the dummy. Every day he'd sit in the back of a boat doing his work, not talking to anybody. He was a nice guy. He just didn't talk much. But they still called him the dummy. <laughs> Let's walk to the right now around the corner and go stand by the third slip. If it's in, you'll see the Smeagol there in front of the big nine on a fisherman's grotto sign right by the lamppost. The Smeagol should be right here. If it isn't, you can see pictures on your phone. Besides crab and herring, the Bosmus Lagoon also go out for black cod, salmon, bay shrimp, sole, and other types of flatfish. The Smeagol is usually rigged up for crab and black cod. A crab boats are easier to spot because they have a crab pot puller. A crab pot is a round trap they drop onto the ocean floor. They look like two hula hoops about a foot apart from each other surrounded by wire. Small fish and crabs can escape, which is good. You don't want those. But full-size crabs get stuck inside. Those pots get heavy, especially when they're filled with crabs, so we pull them up with a hydraulic winch called a crab lock. It looks like a little crane. We pull one pot at a time. Normally, there might be 20 or 30 crabs in a pot at the start of a good season. Towards the end of the season, you'd be happy with two or three. The Smeagol catches black cod with hooks, not with a trap. We call it long lining. There's a special puller for that, and you can see it right in front of the mast. You use a very long fishing line that's about as thick as a pencil, and very strong. There's usually between 200 and 250 hooks per line. I don't do black cod, though. We call it the tool of ignorance, because every time you lay a line out, you have to come back and untangle it, and then repin it again and bait it. It's a pain in the ass. With long lining, the work never stops. If we're lucky, next to the Smeagol is a Johnny L. If the boat is out, you can see a picture of it on your phone. It's a drag boat. See that big spool in the middle of the boat? It has a net wrapped around it? That's called a drag net. It drags on the bottom of the ocean floor and scoops up halibut. It stirs up a cloud of mud on the bottom of the ocean. Fish are afraid of the mud and they turn back away from it right into the net. We get flatfish, skates, bat rays, jellyfish, rocks, and hopefully lots of halibut. We take the good stuff and throw the rest back. The weirdest thing I ever brought up wasn't a fish. It was a dead body. 
He had jumped off the bridge two days before, and I got him in a net. His arms were crossed over his chest, and his eyes were closed. And uh, he looked like he had just died. So, lifted him on the boat and covered him up. That was an unusual day. Everything we do is regulated. I have to keep a log of everything I catch, how long I tow for, and where I'm fishing. Plus, for a couple months of the season, an observer from Fishing Game comes out with me almost every day and keeps track of everything himself. They're nice guys, though. Follow the rules and they don't give you any trouble. Let's start walking towards that brown building up ahead. It's a chapel, actually. Stop by the little walkway leading to it. Besides crab, our other big catch is herring. Those herring pretty much all go to Japan. They like San Francisco herring because even though the fish is little, the egg sac is big, and that's what they're really after. They make this fancy roll dish called kazunoko. When the Japanese discovered all herring in the 70s, the price went sky high. Suddenly, there was three on the boats fishing herring. It got real competitive. Guys were cutting each other's nets and stuff. It was chaos. It's not like that anymore. But January through March, you might see a herring boat. Let's head down this little walkway and go past the chapel. Don't worry, I'll tell you about this place later. I want to show you something else first. Turn left past those parked cars, keeping that big door up there, the green one, on your right. And we're walking to Pier 45. This is where all catch is delivered and processed, and it's where I get paid. You know, they tell me it smells like fish out here. Honestly, after 40 years, I can't tell anymore. But when my girlfriend says I smell like fish, I just tell her I smell like money. We don't get a lot of people like you out here, so just try and blend in, and please watch out for forklifts. Go stand over there by that bluish crane by the water, up ahead of us to the left. I'll meet you there. Well, everybody out on this pier is in the business of buying, processing, and selling seafood. Fish come in in Pier 45 from all over the world. If you come here early, you'll see tons of semis loaded with fresh fish from Oregon and Washington, and especially at the airport. Of course, some of these guys buy fish straight from the boats like mine. This is where I come to offload my fish. I fish for Flannery, the first wholesaler on the right. So this is the hoist I use. When you tie up your boat, you position it so the long part of the arm can swing out over your deck, which is where the fish is. You throw your catch into a box, and then they raise it up and bring it into the market. And then they give you what's called a fish and game tag with the weight and the price of whatever you're getting paid for. If you see any boats unloading, look for sea lions hanging nearby, waiting for the fish receivers to throw them scraps. Fishermen never feed them because we know they're not our pets. You don't want them to jump on a boat with you because if they do, they'll chase you. There's nothing you can do about it except run for your life. They look funny in the water, but when they get out of the water, not so funny at all. Now let's check out that big aluminum structure, another 20 feet down the dock. 
This big metal thing is a fish pump. It's designed for pumping herring off the boats, but it can also pump squid. They call it a wet pump because it actually needs water to work right. If you look closely, you'll see two hoses. The gray one goes into the boat with the fish. The green hose goes into the lagoon because with this pump, the more water, the better it works. It's really a giant vacuum cleaner that sucks fish up in that big round tank. Then it pushes it onto that conveyor belt and dumps it into another bin, which is actually a scale. When enough fish get in there, they stop it, weigh it, and then they dump them through a chute into a big cooler called a bonner. They can offload maybe 10 tons of fish in a half hour. It's pretty fast. Let's keep walking. Our last stop on the pier is right outside a wholesaler called Keidel Fisheries. As you're walking, look to your left across the water to Skoma's restaurant. It's the only restaurant down here that has its own boat. They go and catch their own fish and process whatever they're going to use that day. So when you eat at Skoma's, you're literally eating the fish right off the boat. Outside of Kata Fisheries, you might see some big square cages. Those are used for cooking crabs. Crabs are stacked in one by one, so the legs don't break off. Then they lower them into these big square metal tubs, the ones you see against the wall, a little further down. Those are cookers. They'll cook the crabs in boiling water for 20 minutes or so. I tell my girlfriend that they only scream for five minutes of that, but I'm just kidding. And then they put them in cold water to stop the cooking. And then they put them in boxes, weigh them up, and ship them out. Now, if you see any crab pots on the pier, don't be afraid to take a closer look. That string you see on top of the trap is a destruction string. It will disintegrate if the trap is lost or abandoned. So whatever goes in there won't get stuck. Let's turn around and head back in the direction that we came from. The music you hear is from the chapel up there on the right. You won't hear a mass like this anywhere. This is the last place left in San Francisco doing it this way. The Catholic Church stopped using these traditional masses in the 60s. This is how it was when I was an altar boy. I still remember my Latin. If you go on a Sunday, you'll see that the women wear veils and a minister speaks in Latin. It's called the Fishman's and Seaman's Memorial Chapel, and it's dedicated to the sailors and fishermen that died out here on the bay and ocean. You know, the fog and, and currents make the Golden Gate Bridge entrance very dangerous. They've documented over 150 major shipwrecks, but that's just big ships. You know, I, I can't even imagine how many wrecks there are out there of little boats like mine. For big ships, there's a team of people called San Francisco Bar Pilots. They've been on call nonstop since 1850. They put a guy on every ship coming into San Francisco Bay and out of San Francisco Bay to help that ship get in and out safely. There's nothing like that for small boats, so we're on our own. And that's another thing the old Italians taught me. You can fool the ocean lots of times, but the ocean only has to fool you once.
So let's stop here at the chapel. If it's not open, that's okay. We can peek inside the windows. Walk around the building to the right. Let's look in each window. And don't get freaked out if there's someone passed out under the eaves. They're probably just sleeping off whatever happened last night. This first window is where the organist sits. On Sunday morning, she'll be sitting here right in front of us. There might not be too many people here at the regular Mass, but when there's a Mass here because someone did get killed in the ocean, it's very, very crowded. People have to stand outside because they can't fit inside the chapel. It's a sad occasion, but it's a good occasion too. It gives people comfort to come to Mass. I think it helps out a lot. Now let's walk around to the next window. There's even a better perspective from there. If there's a Mass happening right now, you'd likely be looking directly into the eyes of the priest. The altar is right in front of us. For much of that ceremony, he stands here with his back to the congregation. Let's go to the next window. Through this last window, you can get a sense of the setup. It's very small, and on Sunday mornings, about three-quarters of the pews will be full. You'll see a few elderly fishermen's relatives and widows, and sometimes young wives of Vietnamese fishermen. If you look to the right, on the wall near the chapel door, you'll see small plaques with the names of fishermen who've been lost at sea. Unfortunately, there's a lot of them. Those plaques bring back memories of people that I knew that actually did get killed. It's hard because usually you miss that person and remember that person being with them and laughing and talking, fishing next to them, and uh, sometimes you'll see the boat still there, but that person's not on it anymore. And that's it's a sad thing, but like I said, we accept it. That's the business we're in, and to be a fisherman, you have to learn to accept that. There's no way around it. Okay, let's walk back to the front of the chapel and then head left to the parking lot. I'm going to have to stay here on this side of the wharf while you continue to detour. If you see me around later, say hi. I'm usually fishing and working on my boat, the Linda Noel. Hello again. Let's walk through this parking lot, keeping the lagoon to our right and Candy's hoist behind us. See that big sign in the shape of a ship down there? Head that way. Our next stop is in the white warehouse to the left of it. It's a place called Musée Mécanique. So you're probably wondering, how does such a blue-collar industry survive in what's becoming one of the most expensive cities in the world? Why is this prime waterfront real estate taken up by fishing boats and not huge luxury yachts? Well, it's by design. The Port of San Francisco has long suspected that a fisherman's wharf lost its fishermen it would also lose the millions of tourists that come here each year. And so they make it cheap to keep a boat here. And that cost hasn't gone up since the 1980s. You could say that this is just another way of keeping something alive that might otherwise fade into the past. The wharf is good for that, I guess. The place up here to the left, Musée Mécanique, that's another example of someone working hard to hang on to history. Musée Mécanique is the largest collection of vintage coin-operated fun machines on the West Coast. The owner is a guy named Dan Zelinsky. These are machines that I've grown up with in my basement because my dad started this collection long before I was born. 
And so I've grown up playing with them and watching my dad fix them and so on and so forth. Dan owns the collection now, and he's here every day watching over his machines, making repairs, and building his own. If you have a question, he loves to talk about them, and he's easy to spot. Dan's the guy wearing roller skates and a stainless steel pocket protector. Keep walking to the musée. When you get to the door, go on in. Admission's free. Once you're inside, step forward a little ways and stop next to the red bumper car on your right. We've entered Musée Mécanique. That means mechanical museum. The oldest machine in this room is from 1884. Back then, machines like these were a common form of entertainment. And some were hugely popular in their day. Like the six-foot-ten doll inside that big white cabinet to the left. Her name is Laughing Sal. She's one of the first animated carnival dolls ever made. Here, I'll save you 50 cents. This is what she sounds like. It goes on like that for three minutes straight. Imagine you're a five-year-old hearing this in the 1920s. Maybe it's the only recorded audio you've ever heard. I don't think I'd sleep for weeks. A bit down from Laughing Sal are a couple of change machines. You should grab some quarters, because there are a few machines here that aren't so easily explained. You really need to try them. Pause me for a second if you need to. I'll wait. Our next stop is one of my favorite machines. It's just a few machines down the wall to the right of the change machine. Just past the chair that says, test your passion factor, you'll see a brown wooden cabinet. Let's walk over. We're looking for a big diorama called End of the Trail. All Dan the owner knows about End of the Trail is that it's older than he is, and that it gets more complaints than anything else in here. Notice how the wood is different at the bottom? That's because it makes some people so mad they can't help but kick it. Go ahead, put a quarter in and see why this machine brings so many people to physical violence. And then ask what everyone asks. Why would anyone make this? That's one of my favorite questions, because somebody wanted to build it. That's the only reason any of these things exist. Now it's time for you to explore and have fun. But before you go, I'm going to show you where to meet me when you're done playing games. With end of the trail on your left, walk forward. You'll pass a museum-style display about the gold rush. And then, in a big plexiglass box on your right, you'll pass a complex and beautiful wooden mechanical carnival. That's worth a couple of quarters, too. Keep going, and then turn right after the next row of machines. Straight ahead of you, past the arm-wrestling machine and the big strength-testing hammer on the left, are two gray doors. When you're done playing games, meet me outside those doors. I'll be waiting for you against the fence, next to the giant submarine. While you explore, listen to Dan talk about why he never sells a machine. Because I'm not parting with anything. That's the biggest mistake you can make is part with something and then just regret it the rest of your days. It's like when your kid goes to college. Oh, God, when are you coming home, you know? So that's pretty much what this is. Each individual machine is, you develop a rapport, and it's kind of personal. Seems Maybe that seems kind of silly, but it's true. And sometimes I'd come home, and one of my ma- favorite machines was gone. i say, hey, Dad. Where'd it go? He said, oh, I traded it for something. Oh, man. Of course, he traded it for something that's also cool, but that one machine's gone forever now until you find one 50 years later, if you're lucky. 
but I like just adding to the collection and not eliminating anything because it's not just my memory. It's someone else's memory that comes in here looking. If you take one machine out of here, somebody's going to come in within a week looking for that one machine. It happens every time. It's a very traditional nostalgic experience. And I think nostalgia is probably what the most important part of this collection. It either you know brings a great memory that you've had or it's going to create a new memory that's going to last you another lifetime. Nostalgia is very important to people, including myself. Take your time, and when you're done exploring, meet me outside those doors I showed you earlier. I'll be waiting by the railing. Now that you're back outside, settle up to the fence and look across the bay. To your immediate left should be the World War II submarine Pampanito, and a bit past it is the Jeremiah O'Brien, a Liberty ship that on D-Day in World War II supported the ship's landing at Normandy. Both ships are open for self-guided tours if you want to check them out later on. On a clear day, you'll see Alcatraz Island with its iconic lighthouse tower. If the submarine is blocking your view, that means it's high tide. Go ahead and take a few steps towards shore until you can see again. If we were standing on the spot in 1860, we'd have to be standing on a boat, because there was nothing here but water. In front of us would be a giant wooden pier stretching 2,000 feet into the ocean. It was the biggest of its kind. This was the original fisherman's wharf, though it was actually called Meig's Wharf, named after the man who built it. Henry Meigs was a New York businessman who came to San Francisco during the gold rush to sell lumber. Meigs was a visionary. He knew the city would expand to the north and that a pier closer to the open ocean would be popular with fishermen and sailors. And of course, it would be a big moneymaker for him. So Meigs started buying land, putting up buildings, and constructing his wharf. But building a huge pier takes lots of money, money Meigs didn't have. And soon he was massively in debt. I'll tell you the rest of the story while we walk. Take a right so that the submarine is behind us and walk down the pier back towards land. When you get to the edge of the building, take a right and head back towards the crab stands. Back to Meigs. Now this is where the story gets crazy. To get out of trouble, Meigs stole what was basically a pre-signed checkbook from the mayor's office. He used it to spend about a million dollars, which would be like a zillion dollars today. White-collar criminals should hold Meigs in awe. As a result of his forgery, half the banks in San Francisco went out of business. While this was happening, Meigs and his family were already on a boat to South America, never to return. In fact, he ended up becoming a railroad tycoon in Chile and Peru, and died a wealthy man. Meigs' wharf was destroyed during the earthquake and fires of 1906. Rubble from that disaster was brought from all over the city and dumped into the bay to create present-day Fisherman's Wharf. Let's check out some more of it. Across the plaza to the right is Fisherman's Grotto Number 9. Head over there and then walk back past the crab stands. We're headed back to where we started. 
You'll pass Aliotos in that secret passageway, and then keep going past all the stands. You'll turn right at the corner. Fisherman's Grotto was the first restaurant on the wharf. It was opened in 1935 by Michael Giraldi's grandfather, who was an Italian immigrant fisherman. Here's Michael. When we started in 1935, you know, it was just this block that we're on right now. There was no other part of Fisherman's Wharf. It was this restaurant here, and then Aliotos came later, Savella Torre. But this was Fisherman's Wharf, this one block here on Taylor Street. As we walk, smell the goods. Decide how hungry you are. If you want to stop and order something, go ahead. You can always pause the detour and pick it back up when you've got your food. If you're really hungry, try a whole Dungeness crab. Michael says that if you ask for one that's still alive, they'll cook it right in front of you. It takes a little longer, but you'll have the freshest meal of your life. And if you're a sloppy eater, you'll make friends with half the seagulls on the wharf. I'll meet you up at the corner, at the end of all these crab stands. When you get to the corner, up by Tarantino's restaurant, turn right. I'll meet you over there. Hang your right and walk past these crab stands. I'll meet you out by the boats. We're going to walk on the street, Jefferson, for a while. We're about to meet someone special. Stop here for a second. If we're lucky, you'll see some oddly placed branches up ahead on the sidewalk. That means you're in the lair of David Johnson. I'm David Johnson, the world-famous bushman, for 36 years. For the last 40 years, the bushman has hung out at this spot, sitting on a crate behind some eucalyptus branches. He won't say where they come from, but he will admit he doesn't pay for them. If he's not here, there's a picture on your phone so you can see what I mean. But if he is here, stay put and watch him do his thing. His thing, of course, scaring the hell out of people for money. I jump out the bushes and scare him. They think a, a, they think a, a tree is just sitting in the middle of the sidewalk, and all of a sudden the tree jump out and talk to him. Arr! That's the growl that get them. All of a sudden they just walk past the tree and they start, Arr! and they hear that sound and they just flip them out. The Bushman's become an institution, but it wasn't easy. A decade ago, he won a full jury trial with testimony from a dozen witnesses. After four days, a jury of the Bushman's peers found him not guilty of being a public nuisance. Today, he often sits in front of the Dixie, a boat owned by one of the people whose nuisance complaint landed him in court. He'll smile when he tells you that. <laughs> Let's keep walking up Jefferson Street towards Castagnola's. As we walk, look to your right to see how the historic idea of Fisherman's Wharf exists right next to the modern one. Across the lagoon are a bunch of Monterey boats, like the one Candy showed you earlier. These were the first motorized boats used by fishermen along the California coast. Now they're kept here mostly for show. The boats that are docked closest to us represent the modern fishermen's wharf. These are charter fishing and touring boats, and they're only aimed at tourists. Don't pay any mind to the guys trying to fill them, even if they're yelling out that it's the last tour of the day. I've heard them start doing that as early as noon. We're now walking towards some of the touristy places that many locals associate with the wharf. But it wasn't always this polished. A hundred years ago, this was an industrial zone. And bit by bit, it's transformed into a tourist mecca. 
In June of 2013, the city completed a big renovation of the wharf, seven years in the making. Now it's easier to bike and walk around, and the businesses look a little more inviting. If we were walking here 75 years ago, you'd be in the midst of all those fish processing plants that we saw back on the pier. See across the street up there, where the Chipotle and In-N-Out are? That used to be the standard oil company yards. Their huge, two-story tall petroleum tanks towered over the neighborhood. And these fancy-looking restaurants on this side of the street? Many have been here for ages, but they were originally for fishermen, not tourists. In 1946, Pompey's Grotto was a breakfast and lunch place with just a counter and a couple of tables. Capuro's, which is further up the next block, was a coffee shop hangout for fishermen who convinced the owners to open up a small grocery store so they could get provisions close to their boats. Now there's pretty much one place left on the wharf for fishermen to get supplies. I'll point it out up ahead. Keep walking. Look to the right. And I'll teach you a new word. Ship chandler. That's somebody who sells boat stuff. All the ropes and lead weights and crab pots on all the boats that Candy showed you earlier. All that stuff has to come from somewhere. And from 1947 to 2014, it came from Coast Marine and Industrial Supply, a dusty, overfilled store that sat right here. But now, Comar, as it was called, has given way to the wharf store. Special rules are in place that require whatever business has the lease to cater to fishermen as well as tourists. That's why the awning says gifts, clothing, and marine supplies. And if you peek into the very back of the wharf store, you'll see a sign that says Marine Division. In that little hidden store, you'll find boat hardware. Candy says a lot was lost in the transition. That's kind of a crying shame because you'll find things there that you'll never find anyplace else. They're throwing away all the hardware that they used to have, hardware that went back 30, 40 years. No one else has anymore. It's kind of sad because you know that that's another ear that's gone. That's where it ends up, in a debris box. It's obsolete now, and that's the way it is. Keep walking. The tiny strip directly in front of us is called Richard Henry Dana Place, named after the author of something else you can buy at the wharf store. A book called Two Years Before the Mast, which is some of the best first-hand descriptions of this area when it was still wild and sparsely populated. On the other side of Richard Henry Dana Place, just past Giappino's, is our next stop, Alioto Lazio Fish Company. I'll meet you there. Up ahead is the Alioto Lazio Fish Company. If the big garage doors are open, you're in luck because this is the only place on the wharf where you can buy fresh-caught fish. If not, hang out here for a few minutes while I tell you about it. Oh, our grandfather started this back in the 1940s. That's Angela Sincata. Her grandfather Tom, a fisherman, died on the job. He was 92 years old. And then it's been passed down. Actually, my mother bought into it. So um, now the men have died, the girls have all stepped in. It's the only fish company that's 100% owned by women. Okay, well, let's see. The fishermen call Marianne bitch number one. They call Annette bitch number two. 
Those are Angela's sisters. And they call me the lay bitch. Because I'm the French bitch, I'm the worst. She's not actually French. You go after the family, you're dealing with me. And they did go after the family. After her grandfather died and the women took over. The local boys tried to shut us out. Put us out of business. A couple of them got together and said, no one sells the girls. But Angela's grandfather had always been fair to boats from outside Fisherman's Wharf. And that's what saved them. Two outsiders came from two different ports when they heard and brought us as much crab as we could use. If Angela or one of her sisters is around, they'll show you a crab if you ask. Or you can just walk up to the tank yourself. Strict laws say how many crabs can be pulled from the water and which ones can be kept. All these crabs are male. You can tell by looking at their bellies. If the little flap in the middle of the shell, the one that's aimed towards the crab's head, if that's pointed, then it's male. But you'll never see a female crab on the wharf. Only sports fishermen can catch them. Undersized and females should never come dockside. There's no excuse unless, you know, even if you're brand new, after your third trip, you know the difference. I have seen one in my lifetime and got yelled at to get rid of it got rid of it and said, why are you yelling at me? Well, if Fishing Game Warden had walked in at that moment, the older sister would have been handcuffed and taken out. But I was so excited because, you know, seeing it in your hand versus a book or the internet, it's never the same thing. So, you know, in 25 years to see one, that's pretty good. If you want something salty to nosh on for the rest of the detour, pick up a crab pop. It's delicious. When you're ready to continue, go outside and cross the street. This big brick warehouse is the old Del Monte Cannery. Head into the courtyard, past Flying Ninja Sushi, Jack's Bar, and Norman's Ice Cream. The cannery was built after the earthquake of 1906. In just two years, it became the largest fruit and vegetable canning plant in the world thanks to California's real gold rush, its fertile valley floor. By 1909, there were 2,500 employees, making 30 to 40 cents an hour, hand-soldering 200,000 cans a day. The fumes must have been unbearable. Try to imagine what it must have been like. As we walk, notice the olive trees, which are supposedly 120 years old. Look up at the brick wall on the right-hand side. See the evenly spaced black metal circles? They're not decorations. Those are iron bolts that help stabilize the building during an earthquake. See those stairs in the back of the courtyard? Go back and walk up them while I talk. When we get to the top, we'll take a right and keep going. Men would bring crates of peaches from railroad cars using hand carts which are those things you've only ever seen in silent movies and cartoons, where two men stand on a cart across from each other, pumping up and down on a handle, an action that somehow moves them down a railroad track. It's completely ridiculous. But those things actually existed, and they would come into this cannery littered with crates of peaches and other produce. The workers were almost exclusively Italians from the surrounding North Beach neighborhood. In fact, this cannery was the city's largest employer of Italians in the early 20th century. The men did the lifting and soldering, and women did the peeling, cutting, and de-pitting. This huge operation continued to pump out millions of cans each year until 1937, when the Great Depression finally forced it to close. 
For the next 20-some years, it was a storage warehouse, before finally being converted into what you see today. You should be at the top of the steps. Take a right and walk to the next intersection. This is Beach Street. Notice how there's no beach? Maps of the area in 1839 show that back then, where we're walking was still underwater. It's crazy to think that just 50 years later, this ground was solid enough to support buildings like the cannery, not to mention the thousands of people who worked and lived nearby. Let's keep walking with confidence, because we're on solid ground. Up ahead on your left is another factory of sorts, the Buena Vista Café. They've supposedly whipped up 30 million Irish coffees there since they first started serving the drink in 1952. The Buena Vista is the biggest consumer of Irish whiskey in the country. They go through close to 20,000 liters of the stuff each year. When they switched brands a couple of years ago, it was big enough news to make the papers. We'll take a ride at the corner up ahead. Up ahead, you can see Hyde Street Pier. Before the Golden Gate Bridge was built, Hyde Street Pier was a major ferry landing that shuttled millions of people and cars to Sausalito in the East Bay. Now Hyde Pier is the San Francisco Maritime National Historical Park, a floating museum with a huge collection of ships from the history of San Francisco and the wharf. Stand for a moment when you get to the corner. From here you can see the big brown wheel of the Petaluma, the last of the San Francisco riverboats. A bunch of historic boats live here, like the Grace Kwan, a recreation of the Chinese junks that fished for shrimp in the late 1800s, and the Eureka, which is that big ferry boat you see peeking out from behind the old Hyde Street Pier sign. Built in 1890, she shuttled thousands of San Francisco commuters six days a week for many decades. But the most striking boat on the pier is the Balclutha, a three-masted clipper ship that looks like pirates could jump out of it at any moment. We'll be coming back this way if you want to explore later. For now, cross the street to our left and walk along the sidewalk with that park to our left. Stop ahead when you see the path coming down from the hill. Stop here for a second and look at these buildings across the street. The greatest ocean-based rivalry has to be Shark versus Man. But second best is South End versus Dolphin, the two rival rowing and swimming clubs in front of you. South End is red and Dolphin is blue. They were both founded in the 1870s, and they've been bitter competitors ever since. The Dolphin Club's like a big dysfunctional family. The South End's like a big dysfunctional family, too, but one without parents. That's Dan McLaughlin, boathouse captain of the South End Club. And here's Diane Walton and John Belinsky. Diane is the Dolphin Club's president, and John is its longtime boat builder. Because it's basically two separate facilities doing the same thing side by side. Well, it's not exactly the same. But I mean, swimming and rowing. I know. I'm just teasing you. But it's a little like, you know, Cal and Stanford or, I don't know, what are the other famous rivals? Hatfields and McCoys. Inside each building are boats, some of which are almost as old as the clubs themselves. Plus, there are shared handball courts, a bar, tons of very old photos and trophies and plaques, plus a bunch of very determined people, some of them in their 80s and 90s, who love swimming in extremely cold water. Let's go see if anyone's out swimming right now. Keep walking down the sidewalk. When you see a white round building on your right, that's the queue to cross the street. We're heading to the beach. Welcome to the Aquatic Cove. 
Find somewhere comfortable while I tell you about this place. There are benches on the wall to your right, but I like to sit along the edge of the beach. If you see people in the freezing cold water, resist the urge to jump in and save them. They're actually in there on purpose. Here's Diane Walton, president of the Dolphin Club. The first day I walked out into the water to swim, first I thought, I, I, I must have misjudged something. Like other people must have other other sensory skills than I had. and I, But I thought, no, I can keep going. I can keep going. And I just kept walking out. I was watching how everyone else was going into the water. But really, I thought my lungs, my heart, I thought all my organs were going to explode. Then suddenly it was a little bit okay. Suddenly the water opened up a little bit and I could be in it. There's a better view of the Balclutha from here. It's one of the last of its kind. Like all ships its size, the Balclutha was built for ocean voyages that could last a year. It was miserable work for sailors. Getting to port must have felt like getting out of prison. And finding willing help was tough for captains, so they found unwilling help. As recently as the early 1900s, there was a healthy kidnapping industry here at the wharf. Kidnappers lured sailors into San Francisco's most disreputable bars, drugged them, robbed them, and sold them to outgoing ships. When the poor sailors woke up, they were already out to sea. Sailors that disappeared in this way were said to have been shanghai meaning that they'd been sent to the most distant port imaginable. It sounds completely insane, but this was common practice in San Francisco for close to 60 years, and it was openly discussed. Feel free to roam around the beach while I tell you about the most infamous crimper, a man named John Devine, a.k.a. the Shanghai Chicken. Devine was an amateur boxer and a professional psychopath. He was arrested at least 41 times between 1865 and 1872 for things like assault, battery, and murder. There's no outrage at all in the articles about him, which shows just how lawless the waterfront was back then. A particularly nasty report from the Daily Alta California newspaper on June 14, 1868, lays out the facts. It starts like this. The well-known pugilist Johnny Devine, alias The Chicken, was maimed for life yesterday. So here's the story. Apparently, Devine and his buddy were on a bender, going from boarding house to boarding house, getting into fights, assaulting sailors. That is until they stabbed one in the head at a bar on Davis Street. A fight broke out, the bar owner grabbed the knife, and he slashed the chicken's wrist. I'll just quote the rest of the article from here. Divine, after receiving the cut, took his wounded hand in the other and walked down to a drugstore on Davis Street, where the skin which had held it at the wrist gave way, and the hand fell off entirely. The knife used was an immense butcher knife, almost as heavy as a butcher's cleaver, and the blow must have been given downwards as he would chop with an axe. It struck the chicken exactly at the wrist joint and cut clean through, merely leaving a small strip of skin, which was not strong enough to hold up the weight of the hand. A prettier operation, artistically speaking, could hardly be imagined. Pretty gross, huh? The Shanghai chicken was hanged a few years later for another of his many murders. But Shanghaiing as a practice lived on and didn't fully die out until the Siemens Act of 1915 finally made it a federal crime. That, and the rise of the steamship, which required less unskilled labor to be so brutally harvested. When you're ready, walk back to Hyde Pier. Go along the sidewalk past the Dolphin and South End clubs. 
keep walking past the Dolphin and South End clubs. Tuesday through Sunday, one of the clubs will be open to the public on alternating days. I know they don't look inviting, but if you can muster up the courage, knock on the door and ask them to show you around. You won't regret it. There's lots of weird history in there. As we wrap up this detour, it's a good time to think about the future. Because as much as Fisherman's Wharf has changed, the fishing industry itself has changed even more. When candy started, all you needed was a fishing license, and off you went. Now the rules and regulations, and the uncertainty of knowing whether a season will be closed or a quota will be set, that all makes it too risky for young fishermen to get into the business. So either some young people want to be fishermen, or there's not going to be much commercial fishing here anymore. That's a sad truth because the average age of a fisherman is 58 years old, and a lot of us are, are in our 60s. I'm 66, so I don't know when I'm going to retire, but uh, I'll keep fishing as long as I'm still physically able to. I don't know what the lagoon will be like in 20 years. Hopefully it will be the same because uh, I think the fishing boats are the heart of Fisherman's Wharf. People come down to see us, see the boats, and I, I sure hope it stays the same. Thanks for exploring Fisherman's Wharf with me. I'm going to leave you here at Hyde Street Pier in the company of the historic retired boats that once proudly sailed the San Francisco Bay. As you explore, keep this thought in mind. The next time you visit, maybe boats like the Smeagol or the Linda Noel will be out here too. The latest additions to a floating museum dedicated to preserving the past. <laughs>